great stories from amazing people. Conversations from the Marsh at Podcast Alley. This is Sports and More with Dean Millard. Just before opening day, the Dodgers' number one starter, Jerry Royce, strained his calf uh, running in the outfield. Their number two starter, Burt Hooten, uh, thinking he had an extra day to, to recover, had had surgery for an ingrown toenail. Um, Bob Welch had some bone spurs in his elbow that cost him a couple weeks. Their, their number of four and five starters had just pitched in the spring training closing freeway series against the Angels, and there was no one left to pitch which is how Fernando Valenzuela became the first rookie to start an opening day in the 98-year history of the franchise uh, against the class of the National League, the Houston Astros. What does he do? He throws a complete game shutout. You know, the, the, the next game, nine innings. Next game, complete game shutout. Next game, complete game shutout. Um, in, in the fifth game, he'd, he'd gone complete games, all five. He went three for four at the plate to raise his season batting average to 438. And there was, there was nothing this guy could not do. He ended up winning his first eight major league starts, going nine innings in all of them, after which he had a 0.5 ERA. The guy was Superman. Hello there, and welcome to Sports and More, episode number 42, live, or not live, but uh, live to uh, recording. Here in Podcast Alley at the Marsh. If you're watching, thanks very much. Uh, if you're listening on your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that as well. My name is Dean Millard, and on this show, almost anything goes. Uh, we pretty much always stay away from religion, although I think uh, thoughts and prayers uh, for everybody uh, dealing with this is, um, I think, fitting right now. And most of the times we stay away from politics. There's enough uh, political uh, battering going on right now. Um, we're not going to add to it. We are going to talk sports. In particular, we are talking baseball. That was the voice of Jason Turbo. Uh, an author has written three books. One of them, They Bled Blue, the 1981 Dodger mania, Fernando mania, as Jason was just talking about uh, the trials and tribulations of what happened during a strike uh, season that included a world championship for the Los Angeles Dodgers. So excited to bring you this conversation. Now, uh, I'm a Dodger, of course. If you're watching, you see the legendary Kirk Gibson uh, in uh, Dodger white and blue uh, behind me. Uh, so I'm a big Dodger fan. I'm going to geek out on this. But uh, he also has a couple other cool books. Uh, one, if you're an Oakland A's fan, and one just on baseball uh, in general. So looking forward to bringing you this uh, conversation today. Uh, this is what I'm watching if you're watching me. On the right screen, I've got El Presidente, El Perfecto going. Good of TSN to start showing classic games. They're showing the Expos games, which they had the rights to. And this is obviously... Uh, perfect game uh, for Dennis Martinez uh, of the Montreal Expos. Man, those jerseys look so beautiful. I can't imagine what Low Tide is uh, thinking right now watching these games. He might not be happy a little bit later when we talk about Blue Monday, uh, but he's definitely watching, uh, I'm sure, uh, El Presidente, El Perfecto against the Dodgers. And on the left screen, I've got the 81 World Series clincher, Dodgers and Yankees uh, of the topic that we're talking about today. So we're going to chat about They Bled Blue. Also, dynastic, bombastic, fantastic, and actually fantastic title 
of a book about the Oakland A's and the baseball codes. Uh, some good stuff there. Our top three today will be despised rivals as a kid. Think to back to when you're most mature, immature and petty times as a sports fan, as a kid. And we're going to talk about uh, the Major League Baseball season in our poll question. Both of those brought to you by Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. We also have something uh, new today. Uh, it is Ross Flats Trivia. We're going to have a little baseball trivia a little bit later on. You'll want to know your World Series MVP trivia when it comes to 1981. Uh, so that's uh, a little bit about what we have uh, rolling. And uh, of course, I want to tell you about Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. Of course, we know fantasy sports are awesome. Right now, there's not a lot going on, but UFFS has some playoffs going on. Yeah, the Duckman's Dominators uh, won against the Grizzlies uh, on Sunday night in, in my first game. So they're doing a little EA Sports simulation. If you have a team in the league, you know about it. If you want to check it out, it's pretty cool. Kudos to them. But as for the actual when we get back to playing sports, this is how cool it is. You can own one of only 31 professional fantasy hockey franchises in the world. You get 23-man rosters, 27-player reserve list, daily roster moves, a wickedly unique playoff format. By the way, uh, you could just watch it at their uh, YouTube channel. Uh, so head to YouTube and search Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. That's where you can watch the playoffs that they have going. When they do get back to playing hockey, they have a unique playoff format. These aren't just players on your roster. They are digital assets, so you can buy and sell different uh, players with digital currency. Build a championship or maybe stockpile for the future. They have a scouting program that is really cool. So the deal is there's only a few franchises left of the 31. There's only going to be 31. So only one team in this format will have Connor McDavid until they want to sell him like Pocklington did Gretzky. So if you want to get in, here's the website, www.airauctioneer.com slash UFF sports dash NHL dash fantasy dash franchise dash auction www.airauctioneer.com slash UFF sports dash NHL dash fantasy dash franchise dash auction. Uh, so they are uh, the presenter of our top three, which we're going to get to, but uh, head there, open your free account, make a bid on a team. And if you're outbid, you will be notified in this format. You own the game. So get in the game. Our top three on this show brought to you by UFF Sports is one of the most despised sports teams you had as a kid. Like think back to when you were at your most immature, petty. Um, like I'll tell you this. I was, I was such an Oilers fan in the beginning of my hockey watching career that I went to school after 1986 and I, and I remember telling people that the Oilers had scored a goal after the own goal, uh, Steve Smith off Grant Fuhr. That's how I, like I was convinced that the, they scored a goal and the NHL didn't allow it. Like I just wouldn't believe it. That's how much of an Oilers fan I was, um, uh, at that point. So your most despised sports teams as a kid, um, think back to that age. Uh, I'm going my honorable mention of Thunder Bay Bombers, a big Dean Youngblood fan. Big, big Dean Youngblood fan. And um, what Racky and the Bombers did, they were a bunch of goons. 
So I was not a big fan of them every time I watched that movie. Uh, the San Francisco Giants, obviously, I'm a Dodgers fan. Uh, so that's just a natural rivalry. Uh, I've always really been like that. The Prince Albert Raiders. I grew up in Brandon, Manitoba. Uh, so uh, the Raiders, uh, for a lot of those years, were a big rival of the Brandon Wheat Kings. So, uh, and then I went to broadcasting school with a, a good friend, Alan Bristow, who was from Prince Albert. So we had a, a natural rivalry in broadcasting as well. And number one for me is the Calgary Flames and the Edmonton Oilers, which might sound weird, but I was an Andy Moog fan more than anything. So Andy Moog was an Oiler until 88, then gets traded to Boston. So then I became a Bruins fan. They meet the Oilers twice in three years in the Stanley Cup final and lose both. So I, I did not like the Flames at all uh, from my the first memory of hockey until Andy Moog was traded. And, and I still am not crazy about the Flames. Just it just still i don't know it's the it runs deep i guess uh but then i became uh like a, i was uh i despised the oilers in 88 and 90 because they beat moog and the boston bruins in the stanley cup so strange that i could have the flames and oilers as uh two teams that i despised at uh different times in my uh hockey watching uh lifetime but i want to hear from you hit me up on twitter at duck millard and uh let me know uh your top three most despised teams from when you were a kid think back to those days when you bled whatever color um, because they were your team and not surprisingly uh this one says flames 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 and that's from bernie nice work uh stephen hawks says yankees red Sox, detroit uh, two of three to the day uh, I imagine it's got to be Yankees and Red Sox. The Tigers are a little bit more likable uh, than the other two. So uh, as mentioned, you can hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what your top three are and uh, make sure you get more details about Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports at www.uffsports.com. At Podcast Alley, we'll have one-timers later this week with Jason Turbo, our guest uh, today talking baseball. Uh, we're going to be doing 420 film and one hitters on the Cannabis 101 podcast tomorrow, and we might bust out a prospects baseball show on Thursday. Uh, you can find uh, all of that at podcastalley.ca. Uh, and as we mentioned, we are doing Ross Flats trivia today on this program. Uh, we will have two $40 gift cards up for grabs so you can get your retro Edmonton gear on. Great, cool Edmonton sports teams from years past, from the Trappers to the Edmonton grads, even an Edmonton Dodgers team. www.rossflats.ca is where you can find it. We're going to have two winners today. 81 World Series trivia. I'll throw the question out after the interview. As mentioned, uh, we will have a couple of winners on that front uh, okay of course we have our interview coming up with jason turbo great baseball author uh, but like we always do we have to get to know him a little bit more with the bio Time for the bio. Jason Turbo was born in Bethesda, Maryland, and grew up in the Bay Area of California cheering for the San Francisco Giants. He was at one time a self-described ski bum in Colorado. While attending USC Santa Cruz, 
he started writing for the Santa Cruz Sentinel. He started as a sports editor at a small paper in Northern California and has gone on to cover San Francisco Giants World Series, as well as writing for USA Today, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal, among others. He first wrote Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic about the Oakland A's three straight World Series titles in the 70s. From there, it was They Bled Blue about the 81 LA Dodger Championship. His third book is The Baseball Codes, where he puts down on paper all the unwritten rules in baseball. Very excited to welcome to the program author Jason Turbo. You can check him out at jasonturbo.com. And uh, Jason, thanks so much for being a part of the show. I just finished uh, getting through They Bled Blue and um, I loved it. I listened to it. Um, I, I love audiobooks and I, I loved it right up until the part until the end where you revealed you were a Giants fan. And and uh, as a Dodgers fan, Jason, I'm going to tell you, part of me felt a, a little bit strange because I really enjoyed your narration of it. But in all seriousness, how does a Giants fan end up writing such a great Dodger book? Well, Dean, I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as with... Uh, many professional pursuits. I, I leave my fandom behind. And really the, the criteria for criteria for me to write a book is it needs to be a good story. It has to have good characters. And in, in terms of a book length examination, that can't exist anywhere else. Right. So I need mm -hmm. to be kind of breaking new ground. And this Dodgers team hit all those marks, you know, the amazing characters from Tommy Lasorda to Fernando Valenzuela to you know, the great infield of Garvey Lopes, Russell and Say to Dusty Baker, like the, the names keep going on and on. Uh, it was a marvelous season, a very weird season, you know, the split season with the strike. Uh, a lot of interesting things happened. Uh, it was Tommy Lasorda's first championship. It was the last season of that infield together. It was Fernando Mania uh, and, and it was a Dodgers championship. So it, it all kind of coalesced into a, a very book worthy story. Uh, it's an, it's an excellent read. Um, you know, I became a Dodgers fan in 88 because of this guy, uh, above me. Uh, we were, uh, I was a Tony Pena fan, uh, growing up, but in 88, we were in the middle of Saskatchewan. My brother was playing junior hockey and that game was on and I fell in love with Vin Scully and, uh, the Dodgers and Oral Hershiser. And, uh, it was, it, it was just, uh, amazing. So to be able to go back to another version of a Dodger team um, that that won a championship was was such a fun ride, and I really I'm gonna we're gonna get into more details of the book, but I want to ask you firstly about Major League Baseball and what's happening right now and what you think will happen this season if there is a season. I th 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 it's an easy answer. Nothing's happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know any more than anyone else. I mean, I'm sequestered in my in my basement office here in Northern California. Uh, I know that baseball is is floating all kinds of ideas. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of noise this week about playing to empty stadiums in Arizona, which would you know require sequestering players from their families for months on end. It doesn't seem very tenable. Um, you know, baseball has gone through these work stoppages before, including 1981, mm -hmm. where where the statistics just don't line up. It's impossible to compare that those seasons, 1994, statistically with other seasons. And I think that's one of the worries here 
but we're already at that point. <laughs> There's no way to compare this season statistically, no matter what happens. Uh, and I, I think it's in baseball's best interest just to, to, to be safe more than anything. I think so too. Um, you know, we, we saw, uh, I don't know if you saw the Korean league, uh, playing with, uh, mannequins, uh, in, in the stands and you know, they're, they are playing. Um, I listen, I think the worst thing any league can do is rush back to play or rush to start playing and then create another outbreak. Uh, because you know, a that's dangerous to, to the public and B you're just going to look like morons for, for, you know, creating another outbreak. We have enough people looking like morons yes. who've been in charge recently. We don't need any more. Um, although, you know, speaking to a Dodger fan, I, I do like the idea of utilizing those mannequins at Dodger Stadium <laughs> from innings one through three, and then again from innings seven through nine. You know, before people get there and after they leave, they can still have that full house. Yeah, that's true. I've heard about, I've, I've never been to Dodger Stadium. Actually, I've watched one Dodger game in my life, and it was at... Uh, in San Francisco, which is a beautiful ballpark. But uh, Chavez Ravine is on my bucket list. I just heard it's uh, you leave early to get there is, is what I've heard about uh, going to Dodger Stadium. Yeah, and also, you know, Los Angeles fans are just fashionably late by nature. <laughs> so that's part of it. And then they have to beat the traffic, which is why they leave early. Yeah. Um, but, but Dodger Stadium is glorious, man. It is a fun place to watch a baseball game. So let's chat about um, how this book began. Um, you know, we, we talked about, you know, kind of the overview of it, but what was the, what was the beginning of you deciding this is such an interesting season? Was there one light bulb moment? Well, it, it, it hit me uh, with my, my previous book, uh, dynastic, bombastic, fantastic, which was about the swing and A's of the seventies who won three straight world series mm-hmm. in 72, 73, 74. The, the final one of which was against the Dodgers and the Dodgers team. They beat in 74 had that same infield. All right. This, that was an, an amazing team right? Uh, that, that actually suffered three straight world series defeats, not, not consecutively, but in 74, they lost to the A's in 77, they lost to the Yankees in 78, they lost to the Yankees. And so I'd been thinking about the Dodgers a lot and, and Fernando, Fernando came onto my radar for some reason. I mean, he's obviously there all the time. Uh, I, I knew all about this team from my childhood, right? I, I grew up rooting against them and being endlessly frustrated by them and, and wishing to no end that, that my team would be more like this team. I disliked so much. <laughs> Uh, so, so, I mean, it, it, yeah, it did just kind of click one day that, oh my God, there's not been a book about this group and, and this team and this era, uh, through, through the lens of the Dodgers. And it, it turned out to work out really well. Do you see any, uh, similarities of, uh, pre 1981 Dodgers to right now Dodgers? I mean, you know, getting beat by the Yankees too straight, uh, the Dodgers, uh, you know, have been to a couple of world series, well, obviously last year. Uh, last time didn't work out so well in the first round, but do you see any similarities in, you know, a team that was pretty good, but couldn't get over that hump? I, I could definitely see some, if there was a baseball season, the dot, well, it's, it's tough because the Dodgers this year would have been prohibitive favorites anyway, mm-hmm. but the 1981 Dodgers actually reminded me of the 1972 A's and that the A's to a man told me that their playoff loss to Baltimore in 1971 was what made the difference in their world series run the following season, these Dodgers in 81 were battle hard. Like they had been through it over and over and over. And what set them apart in 1981 was they knew this was the end of the run, right? This the contracts were coming up to a man. They were almost all on the wrong side of 30, except for the, the rookies coming up. Uh, 
the infielders knew there was almost no chance they would be together as a quartet in 1982, right? They'd been together for nine seasons almost. Wow. Like almost double the next most durable infield in history, right? It's crazy. Not eight and a half seasons together. Uh, and, and they knew if they were going to win it, they had to win it that year. And, and the lessons they'd learned in losing, especially to the Yankees, with teams that almost to a man – Everyone in 1981 who had been there in the 70s, they all told me those 70s teams were better, huh. right? They, they were deeper. The, the, the players were having better seasons. They really felt they should have won both those series, especially the 1978 series in which they won the first two mm-hmm. and then lost four in a row. Uh, there's, there's a key moment, which is actually in, in the introduction to They Bled Blue, when the Dodgers were on the verge of going up three games to one, uh, Reggie Jackson standing in the baseline uh, for what would have been a double an inning ending double play deflected a throw to first base with his hip into right field should have been called for interference. He wasn't, it allowed the Yankees to tie the game. They won it in extra innings and they just rolled from there. And, and the Dodgers remember every moment of that play all these years later, because that their season really turned on it. And they took those lessons into 1981. Yeah. And, and, and you, a lot of times they say you, you know, you know, I'm, from living in Edmonton and those early Oilers teams will tell you, you know, they learned a lot from losing to the Islanders and then they went on their role. Um, the, the interviews you did for this book were, there's so many, and I love that you have the part at the end where you explain, uh, doing some of these interviews because, you know, there was, I, I think there's some pretty sensitive, uh, discussions that you were having with some of these players about some of the tumultuous things that were were going on like i didn't know that they were playing the 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 song about uh a gar steve garvey and and his his wife and like there was some stuff that i didn't know about but these interviews that you did must have been so fascinating to to put these all together uh, they were, they were. And of course the best interviews are the ones where people are, are very open and honest. Yes. Um, one, one problem I encountered with this Dodgers team was that so many of them still live in the Los Angeles area and either work for the team or appear at the ballpark many times each season that they were, they were reticent to, to dive back into those particular weeds, right? Mm. There's, there's no reason for Ron say to talk any kind of smack about his teammates even as true as it may have been and as, as much as he may have felt it, because he's going to see those guys within a month at the ballpark. Um, so, so I had to do a lot of digging to kind of get the real story uh, in a way that I didn't have to with the A's. They, they were open about everything. They, right. they, they, they were open in the 70s. They were open with me. It just didn't matter. Um, these Dodgers had a little better grasp on kind of PR spin. <laughs> but this, and the stories ended up great. Um, to a man, those Dodgers were, were very accommodating. And, and, and the interviews were, were very telling, even without kind of the, the underlying, any underlying resentment that might've have been bubbling up. Was there anybody that you wanted to talk to that you weren't able to? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Two people. Um, one much more so than the other. And and the first is Fernando Valenzuela, Mm -hmm. uh, who just does not like talking to the press. So, you know, I spent a week in Dodger stadium, uh, during which I spoke to everyone who's with the team on a daily basis. Uh, and, and Fernando is a broadcaster for the Dodgers and everyone told me you can find him. He's there and he's eating in the press box, uh, in, in the dining lounge before every game. And he's approachable and he's not going to talk to you, but he's approachable. And sure enough, there he was sitting alone every day. And every day I sat down and, and asked him every way I could, you know, will you talk to me? It doesn't matter 
how long we talk. You can overlook any topic you want. We can keep it all off the record if you'd like. I just would love to talk to you. And he just said, no, I'm just not interested. And, you know, I've heard from many people since that time that that's his stock answer. He just doesn't want to talk. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to talk in in the 80s either. He's, He's a very private guy. Uh, the other guy I would have loved to have spoken with, very frankly, is Tommy Lasorda. And, you know, as you've seen on TV in recent years, he's not in great shape mm-hmm. to sit down for an extended interview. Uh, unlike Fernando, he's been on the record endlessly <laughs> since since the moment he came on the baseball scene. So there's plenty of Tommy Lasorda in the book, even without, you know, a, a, a first person in-depth interview. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I think my favorite thing about Tommy Lasorda is love baseball, hate the Giants uh, that that came up in the uh, book because I have a, a, a good friend of mine. Uh, who runs a sports memorabilia, Jack Cookson of Pro-Am Sports, who will relentlessly send me uh, Beat LA stuff, Beat LA. And and I say to him, it's not going to happen very often. And he says, it doesn't matter. It's a lifestyle. So, you know, the, 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 the Lasorda was the ultimate Dodger, was he not? Oh, 100%. For a kid from outside Philadelphia, it's it's like he was born to be a Dodger. Yeah. You know, he, he came into the organization and once he was ensconced, both as a pitcher, mostly in the minor leagues, and then as a scout, and then as a minor league manager, and then as a major league third base coach, and finally as the major league manager, he didn't want to be anywhere else. I mean, the move to Los Angeles suited nobody better than him. Mm-hmm. You know, he was with the Brooklyn Dodgers as a minor leaguer, uh, but he loved the glamour of Los Angeles. He loved rubbing elbows with movie stars. He loved the fact that they were as interested in meeting him as, as he was in meeting them. Uh, and, and he was garrulous, man. As a third base coach, he got more ink than the manager, Walter <laughs> Alston, uh, you know, and, and you can find clips of him like shimmying and dancing in the third base coach's box. He brought, he brought a vibrancy to that team. Uh, and to his credit, I mean, he got multiple offers to manage elsewhere before the Dodgers job came open. I mean, Walter Alston had won the, the team's only championship, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't, he wasn't about to be fired. Uh, and, and Tommy always said, I want Walt's job as soon as Walt is ready to give it up. Right. He, he wasn't pushing him in any way. Um, the Expos offered him their 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 managerial position for, I think, two hundred fifty thousand dollars over multiple years at a time when he was making less than twenty thousand dollars a year. Right? And he turned it down. He said, there's only one job I want. And that's in Los Angeles whenever Walt is ready to step down. And it eventually came open and, and he ran with it. Yeah, man, did he ever. Um, and, and, and you're right. He embraced L.A. so much. I mean, you know, the the he as you write in the book, he has an entire wall dedicated to Frank Sinatra in his office. And the Don Rickles story is one of the funniest stories that I've heard, even though it sounds like it got embellished so many times over the years. But just the the amount of celebrities that wanted to be around Lasorda and he just he ate it up like it was pasta. He did. And, and he wanted to do favors for his celebrity friends. I mean, he, he would invite them into the clubhouse. I mean, the reporters hated it because they wanted to go and get a postgame quote from Lasorda, who set up his office. I mean, when, when he when he took over the Dodgers, uh, Walt Alston had you know a very small office and that didn't suit Lasorda at all. So he kicked the trainers out of the trainers room, took that over as his office. He put up wood, wood paneling and photos of celebrities lined the walls had a bar, had, had a beer keg, had a refrigerator. It was, it was decked out. And he would also have the post-game meal in there. The players would have to come in and see him, whether or not they wanted to. And that made things very difficult for the reporters who wanted to 
A, get a quote, and maybe get Lasorda to talk about a player who was actually standing right next to them. It wasn't so easy. But he would have celebrities in there all the time. Uh, you talk about Don Rickles. And yes, the story has been embellished because the two principals, both Rickles and Lasorda, were guys who would embellish stories like this. Right. Uh, the story that, that is told frequently is that uh, Rickles suited up in a Dodgers uniform because you have to be uniformed personnel to be in the dugout. And it was a September game. The Dodgers had already clinched uh, very late in the season. It didn't matter. And Lasorda sent Rickles out to make a pitching change. Uh, the pitcher was <laughs> Elias Sosa, uh, who had no idea what to make of this. Um, and, and the umpire eventually you know, went out to see what was going on, realized it was Rickles, and, and asked him for tickets to a show that night. Mm-hmm. The, the actual story is still pretty great. You don't have to embellish it. He did not go out to make a pitching change. He just went out to talk to the pitcher, right. who was you know, still just as confused as he would have been otherwise. Uh, and, and that was the end of it. I mean, the, the Dodgers actually had a limit. I think this was 1977, uh, Lasorda's first season as manager. The Dodgers realized that the, uh, the circus act that Lasorda was putting on actually could, could be carried too far. And they, they kind of clamped down after that. That was his, his final grand hurrah. So from that point on, especially in the eighties, if he was going to suit up his, his celebrity buddies, it was going to be as, as ball boys stationed down the the lines yeah there's there's some really good um uh, celebrity stories uh, about the dodgers pre-game and post-game that people should check out in uh, in they bled blue um what when you look at tommy lasorda um you know from the stories you tell about uh, the early days uh, where he was coaching minor league teams and how he motivated his players uh, are, are kind of like masterful like he he sounds like he he either was a master motivator or a master manipulator? One of the two. And, and maybe a manager has to be a little bit of both. Uh, yeah, I think in, in, in many cases, they're one and the same thing. Mm. I, he, he got his players to do what he wanted with an eye toward winning baseball games. Um, you know, later on, he's, he's been accused of over, overworking Fernando Valenzuela. So, it, you know, there have been instances in which he put, he put his own desires ahead of those of his players, or maybe, you know, desire for the team. But by and large, he was able to extract the best out of his players at every level, starting from his very first appearance as a manager, which was you know, on a fill-in basis during spring training, long <laughs> before, before he was even a scout. Uh, he was asked to take over the Greenville team. They were a single-A ball club in the Dodgers chain. Uh, their manager couldn't make it, you know, for an intra-squad scrimmage that day against uh, the AAA team. Uh, Lasorda was asked to take over, and he spent the entire pregame preaching to these guys about how he overheard the AAA manager, Preston Gomez, talking to his team about how they shouldn't even be on that same field with the single-A ball club. <laughs> it was, it's ridiculous. It's appalling that they, they would ask the AAA team to play such a ragtag group of players as, as the Greenville club. And he whipped them into a frenzy. He said, I want you going into second base as hard as you can every time there's a, a double play. I want you legging out grounders like, like it was the seventh game of the World Series. And midway through the game, Preston Gomez approaches Tommy Lasorda wondering why everybody on the Greenville roster wants to kill his team <laughs> and keeps staring daggers into the dugout at the manager. Like he was just trying to get some work in on a, on a spring afternoon, but that's Lasorda. He was not, he was not above embellishing the truth. You know, even, even when he was managing in Ogden in Utah, he, he, he sent out press passes for the very exclusive a lot 
in the Ogden Stadium parking lot to you know to the to the uh, M- MVPs of the, the patronage, right? The the, the most valuable uh, ticket holders, and he sent passes for the stadium club, neither of which existed. There was no stadium club. There was one parking lot. It didn't matter. He he wanted to make as if that team, that low minor league team, was something, and he did. Uh, all the way up to the major leagues, he sent letters to all his players when he took over the Dodgers. Uh, after the 1976 season, uh, telling them exactly what his expectations were individually and for the team, uh, what he wanted them to work on, and and ultimately how much he believed in them. You know, Dusty Baker still has his letter hmm. and said that that he'd never received anything like it, and and it meant the world to him. And that was Lasorda. He he really got people on his side in in very very real ways. When you think of Tommy Lasorda, as far as best qualities, I mean, I, I just recently watched the 1981 uh, clinching game, and, and such a good job you do of telling the story of of Lasorda, like jumping up excited when Bob Lemon pinch hit uh, for Tommy John, and 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 watching that game, seeing how angry Tommy John was in the dugout, uh, you know, after being told that he was coming up, but that was a it was a turning point because obviously, you know, back then guys went more than six innings uh, as opposed to uh, today's game. But um, you know, was he a strategist? Like, what do you think his best quality was? No, I don't think he was a strategist, and and you can you can find many examples over the course of his career, um, primarily pitching to Jack Clark in 1985. Yeah. Uh, where where his strategy didn't work. I mean, you can look at that same World Series uh, when Fernando Valenzuela was getting rocked by the Yankees early on, and Lasorda stuck with him for reasons that made sense to nobody but Lasorda, and actually it worked out. Fernando found his footing in the middle innings through a complete game. I think it was 146 pitches, some, some ridiculous total, uh, and and Lasorda said if we had lost that game, they'd be you know rolling my head down down Wilshire Boulevard. Uh, but it worked out strategically. I don't think it was the right decision, but it, his, his gut told him to go with it. And he did. Uh, and you know, that's, that's who he was. I mean, he, he was, he was a motivator and he was a supreme motivator. He was not a supreme tactician, but he was, he was good enough to get by. Uh, 1981, um, known obviously for the strike and, and, you know, Canadian fans know what that's like, uh, except it didn't come back in 1994 when we all thought the Expos were going to win the world series. But the other big thing 81 is known for is Fernando mania. And I mean, it sounds like from what you describe in that book, that it really took over that area. And, And I really like the history lesson you give about how Dodger stadium came to be and, and why, uh, Mexican Americans in that area did not support the Dodgers for a long time. Sure, I, it, Chavez Ravine, the, the the fabled home of Dodger Stadium since 1962, was once a, 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 a vibrant neighborhood, a Mexican mm. neighborhood. It was it was low income. Um, it was an area where Mexicans could go and afford to go in Los Angeles County. Um, at you know, at, for for much of the last century. Uh, many Los Angeles neighborhoods were were racially restricted, right? And this was open, available land. A mile from downtown, it was available because there were these rugged hillsides that that made the land, uh, in the eyes of developers, seem you know not worth not worth going for. Uh, so these these three communities cropped up. There were a couple schools. There was a post office. There was uh, a church. 
and generations of, of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans grew up there. Uh, in the 1950s, the land was cleared out for a housing development. The idea was that that they would build a housing project. This was in the era before, you know, the term housing project was a negative. Mm-hmm. This was seen as, as beneficial at the time. These towers, these beautiful, you know, clean neighborhoods with, with auditoriums and schools and markets. And, and the residents of, of Chavez Ravine were offered the first chance to get units in the new development as they became available, if they would willingly sell their homes to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them did. A few of them did not and were ultimately forcibly removed in, in pretty terrible ways. Uh, and before that development could get built, uh, during the Red Scare, the McCarthyist, McCarthyism of the 1950s, uh, Los Angeles mayor was, was run out of office. A conservative named Norris Polson was, was elected and scrapped the project entirely. You know, the, the city had already received millions of dollars in federal funding to build these things. He had to return that, but it was worth it. And that left the city of Los Angeles with a lot of empty acreage, not a lot to do with it. And that, at about that time, Walter O'Malley decided to move his team out of Brooklyn. That's mm-hmm. where the Dodgers ended up. They, they, could never, they could never reach that demographic to mm-hmm. O'Malley's eternal consternation. Uh, he knew, he knew the depth of the Mexican community in Los Angeles. In 1981, there were there was a higher concentration of Mexicans in Los Angeles County than anywhere in the world outside of Mexico City. Mm. And and the Dodgers could not reach them to the degree they wanted. They they had been broadcasting in Spanish in Spanish language broadcasts uh, pretty much since they moved to Los Angeles. They'd been trying and and doing all they could. They they the one thing they lacked was a Mexican player to activate that community, uh, the way that O'Malley and then his his protege uh, Al Campanis kept putting it was, we want to find a Mexican Sandy Koufax yeah. who would who would you know attract the Mexicans in the way that Koufax attracted the Jews. Uh, until Fernando came along, they could not do that, um, and 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 Fernando's rise was incredible. Right, he's he's a twenty year old. He's a rookie. He had come up for a handful of relief appearances the previous season. Um, just before opening day, the Dodgers you know, number one starter, Jerry Royce strained his calf, uh, running in the outfield. Their number two starter, Bert Hooten, uh, thinking he had an extra day to, to recover, had, had surgery for an ingrown toenail. Um, Bob Welch had some bone spurs in his elbow that cost him a couple weeks. Their, their number of four and five starters had just pitched in the spring training, closing freeway series against the angels. And there was no one left to pitch which is how Fernando Valenzuela became the first rookie to start an opening day in the 98-year history of the franchise uh, against the class of the National League, the Houston Astros. What does he do? He throws a complete game shutout. You know, the, the, the next game, nine innings. Next game, complete game shutout. Next game, complete game shutout. Um, in, in the fifth game, he had, he'd gone complete games, all five. He went three for four at the plate to raise his season batting average to 438. And there was, there was nothing this guy could not do. He ended up winning his first eight major league starts, going nine innings in all of them, after which he had a 0.5 ERA. The guy was Superman. Like, no one had seen anything like it. And uh, suffice it to say, by that point, the local Mexican community was activated. Uh, I mean, it was a mariachi party in the grandstand. And I mean, it was not just Mexicans taking part. Everyone was wanted in on this. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, one of the one of the beat writers at the time 
put it kind of beautifully to me. He said, what stuck with him was that it wasn't the creation of some PR department, right? right? This was all organic. People were, were showing up on their own and, and it was a beautiful thing. And Dodgers Spanish language broadcaster, Jaime Harin, who served as, as a, uh, an interpreter early on for Fernando told me that nobody in baseball history had single-handedly created more baseball fans than did Fernando Valenzuela that year. And I believe him. Well, some of the events you talk about, uh, you know, outside of baseball sound almost like Beatlemania. I mean, like the, 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 the one event that you describe, thousands of people were turning up for these autograph sessions. And, you know, it's, it was almost like Fernando was a member of the Beatles that they had to get out of there. They had to bring in extra players for protection almost. Yeah. I mean, they had these little meet and greets and they had been doing them for years. They, they, you know, put a couple players in a van, take them out to a, a local park. They'd, they'd meet some kids, sign some, sign some autographs and, and go home. And the most they would ever draw was a couple hundred people. Mm-hmm. And, and something like 2000 showed up at this little city park. Fernando had to hide in a women's bathroom until sheriffs could form a phalanx to get him out. Um, I, before we move on to another topic, I would like to, to point out a new book uh, this year called Stealing Home by Eric Nussbaum, who, mm. who is a great writer. It's all about the history of Chavez Ravine and what led up to Dodger Stadium going there. Oh. Um, you know, I, I devoted a part of a chapter to it because my book is, is about many other things. His book is exclusively about that. It is unbelievable. It's fascinating. It's a great read. I cannot recommend it enough. It's called Stealing Home. All right. Uh, I definitely want to check it out because I'm, I'm loving uh, the, the, the learning about Dodger history is, you know, that's all I'm doing right now is watching old Major League Baseball games on the Vault YouTube channel because uh, that's all we have. So you, you go from Fernando Mania, this, this super rookie that takes the league uh, by storm to this infield that had been together for seemingly ever, I mean, people, speaking of ever, t- people think about Tinker ever chance as, you know, the, the infield and, and this, these four guys who didn't particularly get along that well, gelled on the field so well. Yeah, they did. Uh, and they did, they did not get along well off the field. Um, you know, Ron say could be cranky. Uh, Davey Lopes could be cranky. Davey <laughs> Lopes took, took no gruff from anybody. And, and Steve Garvey was on an island pretty much from the beginning. You know, he was, he was into the care and maintenance of, of Steve Garvey and his own image. Uh, it's, I mean, that was, that was really one of the hallmarks of this team for me uh, in learning about these guys. You know, I, growing up with, with, with this team from afar, watching them from afar, like I, I knew about Garvey's image. I knew how he was Mr. Clean and had this reputation of, of hugging all the nuns and kissing all the babies and, and had heard repeatedly that, he was a phony. Mm-hmm. Like that couldn't be real. It was all PR. And what I learned from talking to people, even his critics within the team was that, no, he, it, it, he wasn't phony. That, that is who he was. He was a genuine guy. He was genuinely nice. And he genuinely looked out for fans in ways that virtually none of his teammates could approach. Uh, that's not what rankled his teammates. What rankled his teammates was that he tended to look down on his teammates who did not hold themselves up to that standard. Um, you know, people who cursed too much, people who drank too much, um, you know, he couldn't open up in ways that he wanted to some of his teammates because he had this reputation to Mm -hmm. uphold. He would sit in the, the, the bus for coaches and, and media, not in the bus for players intentionally putting this remove between himself and his teammates. Um, so 
so what one of my takeaways you asked what what I learned about this team was that yeah Garvey is is everything he purported to be uh, earnestly earnestly genuinely nice guy um, but very concerned about his his self image uh, in, in ways that did not ultimately help his standing on the team. Um, the, the, there's a lot of cool characters on this team and, and, you know, this team spawned a number of really awesome managers and uh, Socia Baker, just to name a few. Um, but Dusty Baker, uh, kind of comes across as just a real badass, uh, cool dude from that team. I mean, you know, he, he had to talk about some stuff that wasn't very comfortable. He was linked to, uh, the, the, the cocaine stuff that, uh, Steve Howe uh, was getting into, but, uh, Dusty Baker for me, I just uh, found him to be sounded so cool, uh, back in like 81 as a member of this team. Cause he had sounded like he had a pretty kind of a, a, a tough exterior. Dusty has always been the coolest guy in any room he's been in as yeah. far as my experience. And, you know, I, I, I covered him quite a bit when he managed the Giants. Uh, and and that's always been the case. Like he he has he's so comfortable in his own skin and he's so clear of mind uh, and he's, he's he's a philosophical guy and he's an approachable guy and and he, he's open to different viewpoints. And and looking at that Dodgers team, um, you know, you see, if, if you're around enough baseball teams, you see clubhouses break into divisions. Sometimes it's, it's strictly racial. Sometimes it's position player and it's always position player and pitcher. And then within the pitching ranks, it's starters and relievers. Um, but there's always clicks in, in, in various capacities. On, on this Dodger team, it was kind of when you came around. There was the, the old timers who came up through the minor leagues with Lasorda. Uh, the infield, Garvey Lopes, Russell Say, mm -hmm. uh, some of the pitchers. There were the the longtime acquisitions like Rick Monday and Jerry Royce, who, who who had come over since then as major leaguers, but had been around a while. And then there were the new players and the rookies, um, as well as you know various racial factions and pitcher factions and position player factions. And Dusty was the the unit, the glue that kept them all together. He spoke Spanish. Everyone respected him. And, and that's to this day, right? It's why he's such a great manager. I think he's got the no same knock as Lasorda as not being a great tactician. But boy, man, I have I have never met a player who who played for him who did not love him and respect the hell out of him. And if you sit in a room with him for five minutes, you'll know exactly why that is. Um, speaking of uh, coming up through the minors, uh, Pedro Guerrero uh, spent a lot of time uh, in the minors and then really blossomed and obviously had a pretty big effect on the uh, the clinching game. Uh, but, you know, he was a guy that was starting to really come into his own in that era. Yeah, yeah. I, he, he, he'd been in the minors a long time, right? This is, this is one of the, the detriments of playing for the Dodgers as a minor leaguer in that era is that mm -hmm. the starters were so ensconced in their positions that there just wasn't any, any space on the major league roster. Uh, you know, as it turned out, he, he was kind of a, a, a Swiss Army knife that year. He played outfield. Uh, quite a bit when when Ron Say broke his arm late in the season, he filled in at third base, <laughs> which you know would, would become a running joke, especially among us Giants fans, you know, because because Pedro Guerrero was was not a strong third baseman. I mean, to his credit, he it's not like he wanted to play there. He was he was taking one for the team, um, but I mean, he had this this classic line. This was years later when when Steve Sachs was having his his throwing issues. Right there was there was a period of time when when he would just yip the ball and throws to first base and, and throw it into the fifth row. And, and someone asked Guerrero, what is it you think about, you know, before every pitch? And he said, well, the first thing I think about is please, 
please God, don't let him hit it to me. <laughs> and the second thing I think about is, please God, don't let him hit it to Sachs. <laughs> but he carried that team. I mean, offensively, he was he was a burgeoning star, and he was he was young life that they needed in that offense. Uh, and then you get into the the World Series, and and a guy like Steve Yeager <laughs> steps up. I mean, I don't know how many starts he had that season. There, it wasn't a lot because um, they they were platooning. But he comes through in the the World Series. It was it was was it three co MVPs in that series? It was three co MVPs. I have the bobblehead right over there. I can grab it if you want me to leave <laughs> leave camera frame of of, of Yeager and uh, Ron Say. God, and was it Guerrero? It was great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's funny. Um, Steve Garvey led both teams in hitting. He, he hit four something. He had a great series, but he didn't drive in any runs because when he came up, there was nobody on base in front of him. Um, so he, he had a realistic expectation that he might be World Series MVP too. Uh, the Dodgers PR guy, hearing there were three MVPs and Steve was one of them, in the, in the dugout as they were coming and said, Steve, go up to the podium. You're one of the MVPs. <laughs> and, and he, he got up there and realized, Oh, it was Steve Yeager, not Steve Garvey. Oh, <laughs> ego blow. He handled it well. I mean, that, that was one time that, that Garvey had nothing to do with it. And, and, and he, he, he handled it like a pro. Oh, that's, uh, that's good. Now, um, in Canada, 1981, uh, the playoffs are known for something a little bit different. Blue Monday. Um, there's, there's in fact a book called, uh, Blue Monday that I have, and that broke, uh, Expo fans hearts. I, I used to work at a radio station with a diehard Expo fan who goes by the name of low tide. Um, so for Canadians, Blue Monday is something very different than what it means for Dodger fans. I have had Canadians flood my Twitter feed, man. <laughs> it's crazy how, how long lasting this, this resentment holds. And they're all good natured. This is the, the beautiful part about it. They'll, they'll, they'll lob a, a grenade and then I'll, then I'll come back and I'm like, why so angry? And they're like, ah, I don't know. It, it's, it's, I mean, it, if the Expos had won in 94, I don't think the resentment would be quite so lingering. Exactly. Uh, I, I don't know how you go about wearing that, that Kirk Gibson Jersey in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I mean, there's a hashtag Reardon was ready that is on my Twitter feed all the time, <laughs> right? Why are you leaving Steve Rogers in the game uh, to give up? I mean, for, for those who might not know, I, I can't believe there's a single Canadian who doesn't. Nope. But, but Rick Monday hit, hit the game clinching home run in, in game five of the, the national league championship series to send the Dodgers to the world series. His name was Monday. It was on a Monday. Uh, the Dodgers wear blue. It just it was uh, as perfect a nickname for a moment as as could be imagined. Yeah, it uh, it's just you know maybe it was payback for the Montreal uh, officials trying to manipulate uh, game times with the weather as they tried to do during that series, which is uh, kind of an interesting story. And, and we mentioned that uh, you know the infield you know maybe didn't get along. Well, didn't get along, and there was different characters. Uh, enter Steve Howe, who was kind of the poster boy for cocaine use in major league baseball. And I know there was the Pittsburgh trials, but how many times did Steve Howe get suspended? Uh, seven, seven. Yeah. I think it was seven. I mean, he missed full seasons. Yeah. And, and, and 1981 was really where things broke for him. I mean, he was a young pitcher and, and he had been doing drugs since, you know, since I think high school and, and certainly college. Um, but it was, it was the, the break during the strike that really set him adrift. 
when he didn't have the structure of baseball. He, he got into cocaine in a way that he never had before, and it forged a dependency that, that he never was really able to emerge from. Uh, you know, unfortunately for him, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time because Los Angeles 1981 hmm. was the center of the cocaine universe. Uh, and, and, and the star athletes were <laughs> the, the vanguard of that movement. Yeah, and and I I remember um, in in the book uh, you you kind of talk to Dusty Baker and he emphatically tries to say hey I knew these guys but I wasn't part of these guys I don't but he, a lot of guys got caught up like I think the best quote is so and so was an alcoholic I wasn't being accused of being an alcoholic when I was friends of him but now I'm being accused of being a cokehead because I'm friends with Steve Howe. Exactly. I mean, Dusty did do coke. I most most ball players yes. did coke at the time. Uh, I have never seen any indication that that Dusty or or most of the players in the Dodgers had a coke problem. I mean, Steve Howe had a big enough problem for everybody, but uh, there were rumors. Many say they came from within the organization, trying to tie Dusty to Steve Howe. Mm-hmm. And and Dusty told me flat out, he's like, "Man, Steve Howe is my friend. I was trying to help Steve." Right. It was the opposite, the exact opposite of what they were saying. But it's hard to be a minority in a scandal and not have people you automatically assume you're the bad guy in whatever the situation is, especially in the early 80s. And and Dusty got caught up in the wrong end of that. Yeah, the Dodgers seem to be, um, you know, a, a great organization to play for when you're in your prime. And then, you know, they're, 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 the big thing was always uh, get rid of a player a year early instead of a, a year late or whatever. And there was a lot of people that were, you know, unhappy about the tactics that this organization would tell. And, and you mentioned, like, those guys knew that they were done uh, after the you know, pieces were going to be dismantled. Like, they were saying Davy Lopes couldn't run anymore. And what, he steal like 47 bases a couple of seasons later? Yeah, he, he could obviously still run. They got rid of Garvey years too soon. He went to the World Series with the Padres. Yeah. They got rid of Say years too soon. He started mashing home runs he for the Cubs. He played Garvey in the 84 playoffs, Say, with the Cubs and the Padres. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, these guys could have been very, very capable performers for the Dodgers. Part of it was the Dodgers had a crazy good farm system. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the players they replaced them with didn't always end up where they thought they would be, but incredibly highly rated rookies. And you can look at the string of rookies of the year that they had. They were great at producing good young talent, um, which, which helped them kind of force the older guys out. Uh, but yeah, when, you know, when they, they were going to release Dusty, Dusty had signed a massive free agent contract. They were actually going to release him out of it toward the end. And to soften the PR blow, they started rumors about, you know, his personality and, and things that, that had gone wrong, none of which were true, but, and, and it's never been attributed to anyone, but, many people can see the direct line from the front office to these rumors that started swirling just so the public wouldn't get that angry about losing a guy like Dusty Baker. Hmm. And, and there are a number of, of kind of bitter ex Dodgers about the ways they were shown the door. I mean, even someone like Mike Sosha, who is, from what I understand is not bitter, but was in direct line to receive a managerial position, never got it. Ended up spending nearly 20 years with the angels. Yeah. Not a, a pretty decent run with the World Series, and he could have you been a, a Dodger. He could have taken over from, you know, just went straight from Lasorda to him, and you would have, you know, two managers in 40 years. Yeah, exactly. And and instead, um, Lasorda handed reins over to, to Bill Russell, mm-hmm. who, who was the last guy standing from that infield, who, who managed to stick around late, late, late into his career. And, you know, I cannot speak to the motivation behind that. Russell did not 
turned out to be a wonderful manager. Um, but you know, it, it, you know what would have been, could have been. Yep. <laughs> what comes to mind uh, when you hear the name Reggie Smith? Now you, you talk about badass. That was a guy everyone respected uh, to no end. Um, partly because of fear, Reggie had a temper. Reggie took, uh, no grief from anybody. And Reggie told it the way it was. Uh, I, th I think Don Sutton put it really well in 1978 when Sutton was pitching for the Dodgers. Uh, he said, you know, in an indelicate manner to the Washington post, you know, people think that Steve Garvey is, is the MVP of this team. The real MVP is Reggie Smith as goes Reggie. So goes us. Uh, that was what he said. And, and ultimately Garvey actually had words with him in the clubhouse about it. Uh, at which point, you know, Sutton insulted Garvey's wife and Garvey had no choice, but to start a fist fight. And they, they both ended up bruised and battered. Uh, and that, that really started kind of the, the public perception of divisions within this team. But no one had any airs about anybody, but Reggie being kind of the visceral on field leader of that team. It was tough for him in 1981 because he had, he had torn his shoulder capsule mm -hmm. this the season before he couldn't throw. He was hoping to come back in spring training. It never happened. He couldn't throw a baseball all season long. He was limited to pinch hitting duty, uh, all the way through the season up until September when he played a couple of games at first base, um, had a, a very disappointing year. But he was so valuable to that team, he maintained a roster roster spot all the way through. Yeah, you don't always have to get along to win. There's been, you know, litany of stories of teams not liking each other, but uh, you get the job done. Um, okay, I want to ask you quickly about uh, dynastic, bombastic, fantastic, which is, you know, we can see over your shoulder, you've got uh, uh, some A stuff. So uh, tell me, tell us a little bit about that. And then I want to get into the baseball codes as well, really quickly. So let's start with the book on the Oakland A's. Sure. Dynastic, bombastic, fantastic is about the swinging A's of the early seventies. Uh, three straight championships. The only team other than the New York Yankees to have ever done that. Uh, when I started researching this team, it was because kind of like the Dodgers, they were criminally underserved in, in the annals of baseball, right? You walk down main street in Cooperstown, New York. And it, it occurred to me literally while I was there, it's like, it's nothing but Dodgers and Yankees and Red Sox and Cubs. And where is this great three-time championship A's team? Almost nowhere. You'll occasionally find an old photo of Reggie Jackson, and mm -hmm. that's it. Uh, and if you look at the story of this team, it would be maybe the best story in baseball history if they were a last-place team. <laughs> the fact that they were a three-time consecutive champion, uh, the fact that they single-handedly pulled baseball from what I picture as 1950s straight into the late 70s, with their garish colors and the, the pullover polyester and the facial hair and the attitudes. Like it, this is an un, unbelievable story. Like the personalities on this team came up together, rode each other to the point of getting into fistfights in the clubhouse on a, a fairly continuous basis. Um, but they pushed that envelope so hard that they never allowed each other to slack off even a little. And you look at the roster, you've got Reggie Jackson, an all timer. You've got Catfish Hunter, who's in my mind, kind of a marginal hall of famer. You've got Raleigh fingers mm -hmm. who's kind of in the same category as Hunter. And that's it. Like there's, there's all stars. There's guys like Sal Bando and Joe Rudy, um, really good pitchers like Ken Holtzman and Vita blue, but, but you're not talking about a stacked hall of fame roster yet. This team knew how to win more than any other team I've ever covered. They, they could grind it out like nobody's business. 
and and I kind of took it as my mission to learn what their secret sauce was when I started reporting. And I got it. I mean, I, I learned so much about paying attention during a game, not just game to game, but inning to inning and at bat to at bat and pitch to pitch and moment to moment between the pitches and what that looked like for everyone on the field. And they all had answers because they all did it because they'd been trained to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they were a cohesive unit like nobody else. Um, plus the day-to-day stories of how they beat each other senseless and had uh, endless fights with their owner, Charlie Finley, right? The fact that they all hated each other did not matter because they collectively hated the owner more and they had that in common. Um, This guy who was constantly trying to penny pinch them on contracts and, and completely turned against them in the 1973 world series. I mean, I don't know how, how much you remember of this, he literally fired one of his players in the 1973 world series in the middle of the series. Second baseman, Mike Andrews committed a couple of errors against the Mets in extra innings in game two. And Finley tried to have him disabled when there was nothing wrong with him. So he could call up a rookie named Manny Trio, who went on to a very successful career of his own. At that point, he, you know, he was just a minor leaguer. Uh, and the A's rebelled. The A's had a flat out rebellion. Um, they flew to New York that night for game three. They spent the off day at Shea Stadium. They taped Mike Andrews number 17 on their sleeves in protest and spent the day just telling every media member who would listen in the, in the country's biggest market how rotten their owner was. <laughs> and 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 it was it was a catastrophe. I mean, the A's were talking about boycotting the World Series, which sent the, the entire machine into a tailspin. I mean, the commissioner's right there in New York anyway. Suddenly, all the officials are flooding into the clubhouse saying, you can't do this, you can't do this. And the A's knew they couldn't do it. They knew they weren't going to boycott the World Series, but, but they played it out as long as they could. And ultimately, Andrews was reinstated. The, the, the good guys did win, and then they won again the next year against the Dodgers. After a, you know, a, a media day in Dodger Stadium, Raleigh Fingers and Blue Moon Odom get into a fight. Uh, Fingers ends up in the hospital. Odom ends, uh, ends up on crutches. This is the day before the World Series is going to start. It's just it's very typical of this team. The stories are endless. You know, I've, I, I remember uh, Finland firing a coach during a World Junior Hockey Tournament, but I've never heard of a, an owner firing or trying to fire a player uh, you know, during that, uh, you know, and, and watching old games as I have been doing a lot lately, uh, two things come to mind. One, the seventies should just be called the Reggie Jackson era, uh, because he just literally dominated, uh, world series in that era. And, um, I was watching the 96 world series the other day between the Braves and the Yankees. And it's amazing to think there was a time where the Yankees weren't very good for 20 years. Hadn't had a title in, in 20 years. And, you know, baseball yeah. fans today, they don't realize that. No, my dark days of the Giants were also dark days for the Yankees. Unfortunately for Don Mattingly, like the teams around him weren't very good. Yeah, uh, as as good as he was. Yeah. yeah, it's true. And Reggie, I mean, he won three straight with the A's. He went he went to Baltimore for a season, and then he won two more with the Yankees. Yeah, like, he he was in the World Series almost every year. It was it was crazy. He 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 earned the Mister October nickname for sure. One hundred percent. So uh, quickly, let's talk about the baseball codes as well. Um, tell me a little, give me an overview of this one. Uh, that's about the unwritten rules. Like as, as baseball fans, we we've all heard mm-hmm. about baseball's unwritten rules and the code by which players police themselves and each other. Uh, and, and you know, the impetus was to write them down because why not? Right. Yeah. I, I saw it at the time as, as mostly as a platform to tell great baseball stories. And I am a sucker for great baseball stories. Uh, 
and, and what I learned as I reported it, I mean, I did literally hundreds of interviews. I would talk to everybody I could. I was, I was at the ballpark virtually every day for seasons on end. And partly because I was working for the San Francisco Chronicle at the time and I got mm-hmm. to be, but I, I double dipped and talked to people about all kinds of topics. And I, I learned how much I didn't know in terms of why players are motivated to do the things they do. Uh, you know, baseball is such uh, a kind of languorous game. There's, there's so much time between pitches mm-hmm. that players have the chance to imbue things they do on the field with meaning, right? A stolen base might mean nothing more than a guy wanted to steal a base. But if it happens late in the game with a, a big lead, maybe he's trying to rub in something for some reason or other that you have to pay attention to for that. And then you pay attention to the pitcher who might be retaliating. I, it, it, it gets very complex very quickly, let alone what your definition of big lead or late in the game is, which is very different from, from person to person. Uh, it, it covers everything from retaliation to showmanship to, you know, team camaraderie, you know, get into kangaroo courts. <laughs> uh, as pertains to this last couple of years, I have, well, a chapter on, on cheating, which includes sign, an individual chapter on sign stealing, yes. different kind of cheating, like rubbing up the baseball, a chapter on sign stealing, a chapter on sign stealing from stadiums from beyond the field of play, it's gone on forever. And I did a lot of research on that. You know, this, the history of, of sign stealing with binoculars from apartment buildings across the street <laughs> and then signaling pitches by opening or closing curtains goes back to the early 1900s. Like t- teams have been doing it forever. And there's, there's some great stories around that too. So, so the Astros have, have certainly renewed interest in that subject for me. Yeah, no doubt. So you can find those at jasonturbo.com, but also tell me about the pandemic baseball book club uh, because obviously we're we're living in a very different world right now and we're not able to do some of the things we had maybe planned to do so tell me a little bit about that site sure well you know it is a pandemic and 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 we baseball authors are not able to get out and promote books in the manner to which we are accustomed um, i actually had a couple of events on my calendar one was with uh the author of the aforementioned stealing home eric nussbaum one was with Brad Belukjan, who who wrote the fabulous Wax Pack, mm-hmm. uh, both of those got wiped off the calendar, and I, I started to wonder how we might do something online to make up for it, from you know the, the safety of our own homes. Um, thank goodness Zoom exists. We're, we've all learned this in the last couple months, uh, and and before long, we we were inviting in and getting queries from all kinds of of baseball authors, uh, specifically who have books out this this spring who don't have a way to promote them in person. Uh, and, and so we're doing you know, kind of one-on-one Q and A's with each other via zoom. Uh, we are putting together a bunch of short features that will be rolling out shortly. Um, and, and mostly for me, we're, we're forging a community that didn't exist. I knew a lot of these guys before, but, but never on a professional level, we never made a concerted effort to kind of, uh, gather our forces and, and help each other promote our books. And that's been really nice to see. We've, we've really been for, forging a, a fairly strong community with an eye always toward driving traffic toward independent bookshops. Um, we, we, they're, they're really struggling and we want people to buy as, as many books as possible, be they ours or, or any other books um, from your local store. Uh, we have links for people to do that on the, the Pandemic Baseball Book Club website, pbbclub.com. Uh, and, 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 you know, now we're, now we're trying to figure out how to keep this going beyond the pandemic Mm -hmm. because we're seeing such, such a great benefit for, you know, authors and readers. We're putting out so much good content, uh, that, that we just want to keep it going. 
Well, I think we're all uh, realizing we can do uh, certain things a little bit differently, maybe better, and 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 maybe spend some more time uh, with our families while we're doing this. Uh, it's certainly uh, a different time, but uh, you know, books are wonderful ways. Uh, to spend that time. And, and I, I love audiobooks. I love that you voice your audiobook. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed uh, They Bled Blue. And I'm looking forward to diving into uh, uh, some of the other ones, even if they aren't Dodger books. I'll even listen to those ones too. There are Dodgers all throughout the baseball codes, I promise. All right. Um, and, I, and I will add that in, when baseball is going, I blog at, uh, at baseballcodes.com, Twitter at baseballcodes. Uh, the unwritten rules are a living, breathing thing. There's always incidents happening. I try and chronicle it very thoroughly. Um, and, you know, there's lots to talk about in the offseason as well. Um, definitely uh, give a follow at Baseball Code's uh, Twitter feed. Awesome. And hopefully we will get some baseball at some point. Jason, this has been so much fun. I enjoyed the book. I uh, can't wait to dive into the other ones. Uh, best of luck and stay safe through all of this. Thank you, Dean. You stay safe as well. All the things that grow up on the land I could pick up with my huge hands I could wave to someone in Yucatan If I held up my two huge hands This is the Sports and More podcast with Dean Millard If I only had those two huge hands Maybe I could reach you then Maybe I could touch you That's the great tunes and sounds of Sweet Bejesus, uh, the official band of Sports and More, the podcast. Big thanks to Kevin Dabbs and Christian Gutzis uh, for the uh, of us uh, to use their music. You can find their debut album, Policeman's Creek, on uh, Apple, wherever you find uh, wonderful music uh, these days. Uh, so check it out. Uh, it is uh, Sweet Bejesus. That was the huge song from their debut album, uh, Policeman's Creek. And, uh, of course, huge thanks to Jason Turbo. What a fun conversation. Um, I, I really want to get him back on at some point, and I want to listen to and read some of his other books uh, because uh, that was just, uh, it was fun. I'm, I'm a baseball fan, uh, and especially right now, uh, we could all use some uh, entertainment as it is um, through this uh self-isolation that we have going on right now. All right, uh, let's bring you the ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question. Check it out at www.uffsports.com. A very cool playoffs on their YouTube channel going right now with with their um, franchises that uh, made the playoffs. And um, some of the teams are still uh, computer ran uh, until they get an owner. And so for that purpose, some of the teams that weren't in the playoffs got bumped in. So it's pretty cool to watch uh, your team uh, in action in front of you. Uh, It'd be a lot better when they get back to playing NHL games in the playoffs and we can all cheer that way. But the poll question today is about Major League Baseball. And how many games will the MLB season be? 140, 110, 81, or none? You can vote and uh, see the results at Duck Millard on Twitter. Uh, so head to at Duck Millard on Twitter. Have your vote and weigh in. 
Uh, right now, 81 games is leading with 47% of the vote. The next choice is none. 32, 30, easy for me to say. 32% think there will not be a Major League Baseball season. 18% say 110 and only 3% think they can play 140 games. We'll discuss this a little bit more in detail this Thursday on the Prospects Baseball Show about why Major League Baseball players uh, want to be playing doubleheaders. It's uh, quite interesting. Okay, as mentioned, we have a couple of gift cards from Ross Flats Apparel to give away. You can check out their website, www.rossflats.ca. You can find classic gear, um, trappers, Edmonton Dodgers, Edmonton Grays, uh, Grads. There's so many great teams. Uh, there's some there's some uh, John Ducey t-shirts, really cool stuff, hats. Uh, check it out, rossflats.ca. And you could be going home with one of two $40 gift cards courtesy of Ross Flats today. If you can name one of the three co-MVPs from the 1981 World Series. Uh, we discussed it with Jason Turbo in that conversation. If you know it, hit us up. Uh, you can email me, sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. You can also get me on uh, Twitter uh, with the answer, at Duck Millard. On Instagram, Sports and More Podcast, Sports and More 35 on Facebook, and as mentioned, Sports and More Pod at gmail.com. I uh, hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, if you did, uh, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and leave us a review. Uh, it's really important for us to be able to shape this show uh, properly. And if you like something, if you don't like something, we'd love to know. And if you'd like to be a part of the program as an advertiser, feel free to drop me a line sports and more pod at gmail.com or uh, sports and more at gmail.com. Yes. And you can check out the website uh, sports and more.ca. All right. Uh, it's been a fun show. I'm going to get back to El Presidente El Perfecto and uh, the Dodgers winning the 81 world series uh, here in the marsh at podcast alley. Uh, I really appreciate you joining me on this episode. Big thanks to Jason Turbo. Uh, you can check it out, uh, jasonturbo.com, and uh, check out some really cool uh, baseball books. And, and if you're into that uh, baseball really bad, you could check out uh, baseball or pandemicbaseballclub.com. It's the pbbclub.com. Really cool stuff that a bunch of writers are doing to uh, provide some entertainment because, man, we all need it uh, these days. All right, that is going to wrap things up. As we go, uh, here's another one from Sweet Bejesus. Uh, this is Pele about the great Pele Lindbergh, a tribute to him. Thanks very much for tuning in, everybody. Playtime is over. <laughs>
His death came away.